why are you all laughing? <laughs> you know, because given the crown and the robe and the trumpet fanfare, the mood I was trying to set was royal and majestic, not hilarious. <laughs> now, ordinarily, when someone enters wearing kingly attire, the crowd usually reacts in cheers, not laughter. So, <laughs> why the laughter? I think it's because everyone has certain expectations about royalty, right? We hold certain beliefs about how a king looks or how he enters a room, when he should be kingly or how he should act. A preacher coming to a pulpit wearing a crown is ridiculous, but in the right place, in the right time, by the right person, well, then wearing a crown is wholly appropriate, is it not? See, we all have certain expectations about kings. This weekend, we celebrate Palm Sunday, commemorating the time when Jesus Christ of Nazareth triumphantly entered Jerusalem, the city of God, to a cheering crowd. And the crowd that cheered Jesus' name and His entrance, they held certain expectations about kings. They hoped that Jesus would be the king that would help them overthrow Russian oppression, a Roman oppression, Russian oppression too. They hoped that Jesus would lead them into an age of peace and prosperity. But what we find instead is that like in so many other areas, Jesus took their thinking and their expectations and He turned it upside down. And so this morning I want to look at four things about this upside-down king. Now, the triumphal entry is described in all four Gospels, but I want to focus on the one told in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. So you can follow along in your Bibles, or you can use the Bible in the, uh, beneath the seat in front of you. If you're using the black ESV Bibles, they're going to be on page 826. That's 826. We're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 21. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the villages in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, well, the Lord needs them, and He will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey on the colt, put them on their cloaks, and He sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. It would be really easy for us to read a passage like this and imagine this joyous, raucous celebration. It's easy for us to maybe imagine that this might be the most, the climactic moment of Jesus' ministry. They're, they're calling him king. I think when we dig into this passage a little bit more, we'll see how different reality was from imagination. The very first thing that we see in this scene is that Jesus was a king without material riches. A king without material riches. Let's focus on just the first three verses. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. One of the qualities we associate with royalty is wealth, right? When we picture royalty, we, we think of golden thrones. We think of jewel-filled crowns. 
We think of uh, enormous castles and fancy furniture. We think of crystal goblets and extravagant feasts. We, we imagine, we, we connect, because our expectation is that kings are wealthy. That's our picture. And yet, the very first image we get of the kingly entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, it's not one of wealth. It's one of poverty. You know, throughout His ministry, Jesus and His disciples primarily traveled from region to region by foot because they couldn't afford animals upon which to ride. And by foot is how Jesus and His disciples approached Jerusalem. And here in Matthew 21, we see that Jesus, He had to borrow someone else's donkey to make His grand entrance. Is that the action of a king? Notice in verse 3 that Jesus instructed the disciples to tell the owner of the donkeys that He needed them. And in those days, one indicator of wealth was the quantity of livestock owned. Certainly a king would have sizable flocks and herds, right? For example, in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, the Bible gives us this description of King Solomon's wealth. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots, 12,000 horsemen, and horses were imported for Solomon from Egypt and from all lands. That's a picture of wealth. Because animals, especially horses, were a measure of kingly wealth. Yet here's Jesus borrowing someone else's donkey because he needed one. This wasn't a unique moment, by the way, because Jesus' entire life was lived under the strain of poverty. The Bible tells us that when he was born, Mary wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger. I know that when I see the term swaddling cloth, it makes me picture a wrapping up a cute baby in a blanket, all comfy and cozy. That's, that's actually not the Greek word being used here in Luke 2, what it means. The Greek word used in Luke 2 actually means strips of cloth or pieces of fabric or rags. Jesus wasn't wrapped up in a warm, cozy blanket at birth. He was wrapped in rags and then laid in an animal feeding trough. From the moment of Jesus' entry into humanity, entry into this world, Jesus experienced a life of poverty. We see, this, another, we see another sign of this eight days later when Joseph and Mary are presenting Him at the temple. Now, the Mosaic law required the sacrifice of a young lamb, but if you couldn't afford a lamb, you could substitute two young turtle doves or pigeons. And that's exactly what we see Joseph and Mary do later on in Luke 2, because they were poor. Jesus' poverty was not limited just to His childhood either. In Matthew chapter 21 and 12, during his ministry, Jesus and his disciples were wandering in a grain field, and they were hungry. And because they had no other food to eat, they began plucking the heads of grain from the field and began to eat it. You see, part of the Mosaic law commanded people to leave a portion of their field unharvested so that the poor would have something to eat, which is exactly what's going on with Jesus and his disciples. Jesus suffered under the strain and stresses of poverty throughout his life and ministry. And the reasons for that are many, but I think one of the reasons was to push against the cultural mindset of the people at that time. Back then, people believed that wealth was a mark of God's blessing upon a person. If you were rich, that meant God loved you. They believed that any king worth his salt would be blessed by God and be wealthy. But where the culture believed that your material status mattered... Well, Jesus turned that, up, that expectation upside down and said, it doesn't. You see, God's favor does not rest on the rich. 
God's favor rests on those whom He chooses to favor. God's blessings don't go to the wealthy, but to the obedient. And our value to God as people, it's not based on the size of our bank accounts. No, it's based on our status being made in the image of God. Ultimately, Jesus is not the kind of king that will bring about earthly prosperity for His people, but rather heavenly prosperity. Jesus was not just a king for the blessed wealthy, but a king for all people, even those considered the least, like the poor. John Piper said, The fact that Jesus was born to a poor couple in a cow stall tells us something about the way God meant to reach the world. Apostle Paul put it this way, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that by His poverty you might become rich. Poverty was a mark of this upside-down king. And secondly, Jesus was a king without personal glory. Let's look at verses 4 through 7. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. In addition to reflecting Jesus' poverty, I think Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on a donkey reflected his lack of personal glory or pride. I want you to picture this moment with me for a moment. I want you to picture the kingly entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem. Because when I envision a kingly entrance, I think about a king riding tall atop a mighty stallion. This is the kind of majestic creature I imagine a king riding. I googled stallion, and this beautiful creature is the image that I found. Stallions are five to six feet tall, strong and sleek. You ride in an animal like that, and people are literally and figuratively looking up to you. Right? Imagine how noble you must feel coming into a, a town sitting on that. That's not the kind of animal Jesus rode in on. No, verse 2 tells us it was a donkey. And not just any donkey, but a young donkey, a colt. I googled young donkey, and this is the image that I found. (laughs) That. That's the kind of animal that Jesus rode in to cheering crowds on. Young donkeys are three to four feet tall. They're not strong and sleek, they're, they're small and they're wiry. I mean, without being blasphemous, I think I can safely say that Jesus looked very unkinglike riding in on a borrowed donkey colt. He didn't look noble. He didn't look glorious. He looked unkinglike. Now, part of the reason why Jesus rode in on a donkey was to fulfill prophecy. Look at verse 5 again. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Verse 5 is quoting the prophet Zechariah. It is one of the many, many prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in his lifetime, demonstrating that he was, in fact, the Messiah, that he was the one chosen by God to rescue his people. But in addition to fulfilling prophecy, I think Jesus rode in on a donkey to demonstrate a larger point And that point was about humility. Verse 5 actually points that out. Look, behold, your king is coming to you 
humble. Kings are rarely humble. I mean, kings have the wealth to buy whatever they want. Kings have the power and authority to tell people what to do and what not to do. Kings are famous. I mean, our wealth, power, and fame, are these things that breed humility? I mean, I walked out on stage wearing a plastic crown, and I felt amazing. Can you imagine how much more my ego would have grown if I was an actual king with an actual crown? But it's not just kings that need to learn humility. Every single human being needs to learn humility. You and I, we live in a world that glamorizes fame and fortune and social standing. We live in a culture that preaches the value of self-esteem. We live in an age where we are told to look out for number one. No. Where the culture believes that your pride and your, your social status and your personal glory matters, Jesus turns that expectation upside down and says, no, it doesn't. The Bible repeatedly commands us to seek humility. Jesus said, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. James 4 says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Proverbs teaches us, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Humility is one of the core virtues that characterize God's people. Where sin elevates self above others, including God, humility places self in its proper place in submission to the King. God's people are to be humble, just as Christ was humble. 19th century pastor Andrew Murray wrote, Men sometimes speak as if humility and meekness would rob us of what is noble and bold and manlike. Oh, that all would believe that this is the nobility of the kingdom of heaven, that this is the royal spirit that the king of heaven displayed, that this is godlike, to humble oneself, to become servant of all. That's godlike. That's no noble. Humility was the mark of this upside-down king. Thirdly, Jesus was a king without a pure lineage. Look again at verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! In most cultures, being the king, it's not an elected position. Right? It's a position of birth. People become king or queen because they're the son or daughter of a king or queen. For example, this is the lineage of Queen Elizabeth II, the current queen of England. Queen Elizabeth II is the daughter of King George VI, who was the son of King George V, who was the son of King Edward VII, who was the son of Queen Victoria, and so on. You get the picture. Monarchies can trace the purity of their noble bloodline back for centuries. And not including the first king of Israel, that was Saul, and God chose him through the prophet Samuel. Not including Saul, being born into the monarchy was the path to kingship in ancient Israel as well. And this explains then why the crowds chanted what they chanted on Palm Sunday. Verse 9 says that they chanted, Hosanna to the Son of David. This phrase, Son of David, has two meanings. One meaning, which I won't get into today, is that it refers to the Messiah. But the second meaning of Son of David is literal. It refers to the royal bloodline of King David. 
Descendants of David held royal blood within them. And that's what they shouted at Jesus. You ever wonder why the Bible includes so many lineages? Raise your hand if you're like me, that when you, uh, when you, when you encounter a lineage in, in your Bible reading, that you tend to gloss over the list of names. Raise your hands. More of you should be raising your hands. I think the Bible includes these lineages in Scripture for two reasons. One is because the majority of the writers of Scripture were Jewish and lineage was important to them. Um, more than just being king, genealogy mattered to ancient Israelites. For example, the Mosaic law established through lineages how to determine property rights and how land was distributed. So it mattered to the writers of Scripture. But the second reason I think that lineages are in Scripture is because the Holy Spirit inspired men to write these lineages because God was trying to make a particular po point about the importance of your ancestral birth. And the point is this, it's not at all important. Where the culture believed that your lineage mattered, Jesus turns that expectation upside down and says, it doesn't. I want us to examine, examine with me Jesus' Jesus's lineage. Now, if I'm Jesus' biographer, I'm going to want to paint a pure lineage. I'm going to include all the famous people. I'm going to include kings. I'm going to exclude anything that's potentially embarrassing, right? The Bible takes a very different tack. Take a look at Jesus' lineage in Matthew chapter 1 with me. This is how Matthew 1 puts Jesus' lineage. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. I want you to pause with me there. Back then, Jewish culture was a patriarchal culture. That means they were male-dominated. And because they were patriarchal, genealogies always followed the male descendants. It wasn't supposed to include women. But the Bible repeatedly turns patriarchal culture and it, 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 upside, it flips upside down the, the culture's expectations about the role and importance of women. It repeatedly does that. And here in this genealogy, the writer mentions Tamar. The story of Judah and Tamar is told in Genesis chapter 38. Now, Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. She was widowed, and Judah did not follow through on a promise that he made to her. So Tamar ends up tricking Judah into impregnating her. And, and Tamar's trickery makes up for Judah's failure, failure, and it continues the lineage of Jesus. The Bible includes the deception because of how important it was to Jesus' family history. And then it continues. And Perez, the father of Hezron, Hezron, the father of Ram, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Notice there's a bunch of descendants in there, but they only call out two women, Ruth and Rahab. Rahab is mentioned in Joshua chapter 6. She was the prostitute who helped two Israelite spies escape the city of Jericho. And Ruth? Ruth was the Moabite woman who followed and supported her mother-in-law, Naomi. Moabites, by the way, were a group of people that the law of God forbid people from marrying. But both women were critical to carrying on Jesus' lineage. And so the Bible bucks convention and makes note of their importance to his family history. But they were also pretty scandalous additions to the family history. One was a prostitute and one was a Moabite, a foreigner. 
Why would the official lineage of Jesus include references to a prostitute and a foreigner? One more. And Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David was revered by Israelites as their greatest king. The Bible calls David a man after God's own heart. And yet this, God, this great and God-hearted man, he sires his son Solomon through another man's wife, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba. The story is told in 2 Samuel chapter 11 where David commits both adultery and murder, by the way. Why? Why would the official lineage of Jesus include this disgraceful incident? Because it brings shame to both King David and Jesus. I think the Bible includes all these parts of Jesus' history and genealogy to emphasize this point that where the culture believed that the purity of your lineage mattered, God says it doesn't. You know, if Jesus' lineage is filled with only pure noble blood, then maybe you buy into the lie that God only blesses the rich and powerful and wealthy. But because Jesus' lineage is filled with common people and scandalous people and sinners, it's filled with people like you and me, then we understand that Jesus is the king for all people, that all people are loved by God, that all people are represented by Christ, that all people are invited into God's family. Jesus can be king of all of us because he was one of us. The Bible says there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Tim Keller said, Jesus' lineage shows us that people who are excluded by culture, excluded by respectable society, and even excluded by the law of God can be brought into Jesus' family. In Jesus Christ, Prostitute and king, male and female, Jew and Gentile, one race and another race, moral and immoral, all sit down as equals because equality is the mark of this upside-down king. Finally, while on Palm Sunday we see that Jesus was a king without material riches, without personal, personal glory, without a pure lineage, what the events of Holy Week and the rest of Scripture teaches us is that Jesus was a king with heavenly riches, a king with an eternal glory, and a king with a divine lineage. Holy Week is the week on the church calendar that begins with Palm Sunday and it ends with Easter. And it's no coincidence Palm Sunday begins with a celebration of a king because Easter culminates the week with a celebration of a king. To fully appreciate what this week means to followers of Jesus Christ, to understand what it means to the entire world, to know what the, the Easter message really is, you're going to have to come back and join us for one of our Good Friday services and one of our five Easter weekend services. But let me briefly touch upon three things about the, king, the kingship of Christ. First, Jesus is a king with heavenly riches. You know, we naturally connect the word rich, riches and the word wealth with the tangible riches of this world. We think of wealth and we think of fancy cars and, and vacation homes and full bank accounts. And Jesus promises his followers none of that. Jesus promises us nothing of this world, nothing. Ah, but Jesus promises something much, much more valuable, far greater. He promises us himself. He promises a restored relationship with the creator of the universe. 
far more valuable. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 13 and said, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The value of God's kingdom is so much greater than anything else in this world, anything else worth so much more. It's Christ the King who offers that to us. Second, Jesus is a king with an eternal glory. In Jesus' life, we see the ideal of humility perfectly lived out. From being wrapped in rags and laid in a feeding trough, to entering the city of God on a borrowed donkey colt, to washing his disciples' feet, to dying a thief's death on a cross, to being buried in a borrowed tomb. Throughout his life, Jesus willingly placed himself in positions requiring humility. Positions where people could look down on him. But make no mistake, brothers and sisters, when eternity does come, when eternity does come, none shall look down upon the Lord Jesus Christ, but all shall gaze up at him at his majesty. When Jesus comes back, he won't ride in on a donkey colt, he will come in on a stallion. The Bible says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. One day, Jesus will reveal himself in all his eternal glory, and we will see Christ the King as he truly is. Lastly, Jesus is a king with a divine lineage. Jesus was a direct descendant of King David, so he was part of a royal bloodline. But all the focus on Christ's kingship coming out of David's lineage, it misses the far more important family connection. And that connection is that Jesus was connected to God the Father, the King of all creation. Several times in the Gospels, as Jesus cast out demons, the demons recognized who he was and cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Son of God, not Son of David. When the disciples saw Jesus walking on water, the Bible says, And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When Jesus died on the cross afterwards, one of the Roman centurions said, Truly, this, this was the Son of God. People who spent time with Jesus came away recognizing the truth of his birth, that his father was not an earthly father. His father was God the Father who was the king. And to clarify, Jesus' divinity, it doesn't pass down through some royal bloodline. No. Jesus' divinity is part of who he was. It's part of his nature. It's part of who he was as one of the three persons of our triune God. That's who he was. All the other kings and queens of this world, they can boast of their pure noble bloodlines, but only Christ can boast the purity of his divine one. The Bible says in Colossians, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is who Christ the King is, the one and only Son of God. In the book of Acts, Paul and Silas went to Thessalonica to preach the gospel. And the gospel was so offensive to the people that it caused a riot. And the Bible said this about that incident. And when the mob could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, 
there's another king, Jesus. I love that verse. I love that phrase, turn the world upside down. The message that you and I have as followers of Jesus Christ, the message that we get to bring to the world is the message that there is a king, and his name is Jesus, and he will transform your life if you submit to his kingship. That is a world-turning message. And it is our great responsibility and our great privilege as a church to bring this message to the world. And the Easter season is the perfect opportunity to deliver this message. Let me suggest three next steps that relate to us spreading to those around us this world-turning news. First, I will attend one of LC3's Easter weekend services and serve at another. As I noted earlier, Holy Week, it's the most important week on the church calendar. It's a time that we get to celebrate the person work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one true King. To hear more about Jesus and why this week is so important, please attend one of our two Good Friday services at, 4, 30, at 6 and 7.30 p.m., 6 and 7.30 p.m. on Friday. And join us for at least one of our Easter services at 4.30 p.m. and 6 p.m. this Saturday or 8.30 a.m., 10 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. Sunday morning. In addition, please invite your friends and invite your family to join you because everyone, everyone needs to hear the message about our King. We still have a number of invite cards outside the door of the worship center, so feel free to grab some and hand them to everyone that you see. We're also asking that those that call Lake City their home church to serve at another service outside of the one that they're attending. We're expecting our biggest weekend ever and we're going to need additional greeters, childcare workers, Buna volunteers, ushers, security team folks. There is a, an insert in today's bulletin, and it's got a, a list of ways that you can be volunteering. If you have the ability to help and availability, please mark that on the card and drop that in the offering bag at the close of the service. Uh, one of the great ways that you can serve the church this weekend. Second, I will serve the kingdom of God. One of the best ways to, to share this message that turns the world upside down is by serving people and loving people through ministry. It's one thing to call Jesus king and another to serve his kingdom. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are God's workmanship created for good works. That's what we're created for. Whether you've been attending Lake City for a while or whether you're new to the church, consider joining one of the many ministries here whether it's men's ministry or women's ministry or small groups, child care, worship and arts, Awana, re-engage, food bank, and so on. There are ministries here for every person, every passion, every spiritual gifting. You and I are called and created to serve the king by serving his kingdom, by serving his people. Lastly, if you're not a Christian, this is the most important step that you could possibly take in your life, the one that will completely turn your world upside down. That's to accept the kingship of Christ. What you do, friend, about Christ's kingship in your life has eternal ramifications. A story is told about the death of Alexander the Great, one of the greatest kings to have ever lived. On his deathbed, Alexander realized how his conquests and his wealth and his power, how empty they were and how of little consequence they were once he died. And so Alexander the Great told his advisors he had three wishes for his funeral. First, he wanted his physicians to carry his coffin. Second, he wanted the path leading to the graveyard to be lined with gold, silver, and other precious stones. And third, 
He wanted his hands to be kept dangling out of his coffin. The reason behind these three requests? He wanted physicians to carry his coffin so that people would recognize that no doctor ultimately cures final death. He wanted gold and riches lining the way to the graveyard to show people that not even a fraction of one's wealth will accompany one to the grave. And he wanted his hands dangling outside of the coffin to let people know that he came into the world empty-handed and he would leave it empty-handed. Alexander the Great's last recorded words were, bury my body, do not build any monument, and keep my hands outside so the world knows that the person who won the world had nothing when dying. One of the greatest kings who ever lived went to his death recognizing that everything he had here on earth had no purpose, held no value. And my friend, maybe you feel the same way that the life that you're living lacks meaning, lacks purpose, holds no value. And that would absolutely be true of your life outside of this great truth of Easter, of the great truth of the gospel. And that's this, that Jesus is no upside-down king. He's the one true king. And it's the world that is upside down. And Jesus has come to set everything right side up. That Christ is king. And our king is coming soon. Maybe you're struggling through something immensely difficult. Like a relationship in crisis. Or medical diagnosis. The Bible says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. In Christ alone do we find hope and deliverance. Because Christ is king. And our king is coming soon. Maybe you're just so tired of the daily grind of life wearing you away. So tired. But Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. In Christ alone do we have peace, because Christ is king, and our king is coming soon. Will you come to the king, my friend? Will you come to the king? Come to the king. Beloved, as we approach the cross and the resurrection... Let's prepare our hearts to celebrate His kingship. Join us this weekend for the royal celebration because Easter is coming and so is our King. Let's pray. Father, Lord, Lord Jesus, we thank You for the great truth of the gospel that You are the King and that You've come to make our world right side up. And it's only by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we're able to be back in a right relationship with you. Lord, thank you for this world-turning message that we have to share. May we proclaim it boldly. May we proclaim it joyfully. And may those who hear the great hope of Easter submit themselves to your kingship. Lord, I pray for those that, that are here who don't know you. Lord, I pray for those that are seeking to, the answer to that God-shaped hole in their heart. I pray that those that are seeking meaning and purpose would find it only in the place that they can find it, in a relationship with you. I ask that you would reveal yourself to them. I ask that you would keep tugging it at their hearts, that you would give them no peace until they find that peace in you and submit to your kingship. Thank you, Lord, that you are our only hope, that you are our story, that you are our song. We lift up all that we are in the name of Jesus Christ, the one true king, the one who is coming soon. Amen.